Who was your first grown-up friend? Maybe it was your kindergarten teacher. Maybe it was your mailman or your babysitter or the guy who would always give you free samples at the grocery store. Are you still in touch with them? The answer is, most likely, a very understandable no. We all have childhood connections that are bound to disintegrate over time because as kids, you don't have control over who enters and exits your life. Maybe you don't remember that many details about this person, but you definitely remember how special they made you feel. My first adult friend comes to mind as a vision of an elderly woman with white hair bent over in her garden on a lazy afternoon in my hometown of Silver Lake, an impossibly picturesque suburb of Akron, Ohio. That woman was our next-door neighbor, Ronnie. Remembering Ronnie after so many years is, in some ways, a little bit of a challenge. But the things I do remember about her are incredibly vivid. I can remember my sister and my frequent trips to her front stoop, where we'd ring the doorbell in anticipation of popsicles. She got flavors our mom didn't, banana and root beer. She loved Halloween. She had a flat driveway, and we had standing permission to ride our scooters and draw with chalk all over it. Her meticulously curated garden was our choice location for immersive fantasies of being princesses, sitting with full-circle skirts splayed, singing about our princes. Ronnie adored us, and we adored her. I remember exactly where I was when my mom told me that Ronnie had passed away, sitting at our white countertop using paint pens to color a printable coloring page of a unicorn, a cartoonishly symbolic use of time in retrospect. After months of battling another round of cancer, Ronnie died on February 7th, 2005. I was in fourth grade, and it was my first experience of losing someone that I loved. Another one of my deepest memories from the time Ronnie was sick was from December, just a few months before her passing. Her daughter, in Cleveland to take care of her, brought over our Christmas presents. This solidified Ronnie's daughter as yet another key, mysterious figure from my childhood. It was a cold winter night, and I remember her standing at our front door, high, fair cheekbones and red hair lit up by the porch light. She was there and gone, just having stopped by for a brief moment. In the bags were wrapped bottles of bubble bath with naked ladies on the label. It was a big deal that she came by, not only because of the sweetness of the gesture, but because Ronnie's daughter is Gates McFadden, actress, director, choreographer, mentor extraordinaire, best known for playing the role of Dr. Beverly Crusher on Star Trek The Next Generation. Maybe even minimal exposure to the radiation altered the cellular physiology. Wrong with me, maybe there's something wrong with the universe. With her signature red hair, razor sharp intellect, and singular power to order Captain Picard around, Dr. Crusher was a beloved regular on the hugely popular series. But of course, I didn't know any of that then. She was just a pretty lady bearing presence and a powerful aura. Once Ronnie passed away, we fell out of contact with Gates, as time will do to connections like ours. As my mom and I spent countless afternoons of my fifth and sixth grade years watching The Next Generation when I would get home from school, I would always observe Dr. Crusher through a very particular lens, looking for traces of Ronnie in her daughter on screen. Sometimes I could see it, but the moments were fleeting. It felt like a bizarre dream that our paths had ever even crossed. Flash forward to now, months into quarantine, and I'm watching the series again with my boyfriend. He's never seen it before. And I still find myself wondering, what is Gates like? And moreover, what was Ronnie like? 
Did she actually give us popsicles? What was the relationship like between Gates and Ronnie? What do Gates and I have in common? We both grew up in the same town. We're both artists, obviously at extremely different stages of the game. We both loved her mother, albeit in extremely different ways. I wanted to ask her. I asked my mom if she had Gates's email address, and she could unearth one ancient phone number. And I obviously was not going to cold call said number. So I did what any enterprising young woman would do. I cold tweeted at Gates, asking if she remembered me and if I could talk to her. Even if I never got a response, I wholeheartedly believed that it was worth a shot. And shockingly, it worked. And I'm here with you to share our conversation. Welcome to Wholehearted, where we feel things all the way. Here we share stories of wholehearted commitment to the people, places, things, and ideas we believe in, for better or for worse. And welcome to our first episode of season two. I'm your host, Anna Ray Leach. Anyway, so I was on the phone with Gates McFadden. Hello, Hannah. Hi, how are you? I'm very well. How are you? I'm good. It's so good to finally talk with you. Where are you? Are you in Ohio? I'm in Cleveland right now. Okay. Yeah. How's that? What's your job? So I do a couple different things. Here's where I proceeded so, to explain my work situation. I'll spare you and myself the pain of hearing the raw audio of that. Uh, because I was freaked out at the beginning of this call. The fact that we had connected and now we're talking on the phone felt, again, like the strangest alignment of circumstances. Wow, so you're busy catching what one can get. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> well, I get it. I was there when I was your age. Yeah. So how old are you? So I'll be 25 in July. Wow. Yeah, <laughs> it's weird. You baby. You baby. <laughs> well, that's cool. I mean... You know, there was another family who was before you who I met those kids when they were growing up more mm-hmm. than I just met you guys a couple of quick times. Right. You know, what's your sister's name? My sister's name is Audrey. Audrey, that's right. Yeah. Because mom used to tell me about you guys. <laughs> but, uh, you know, she knew you guys very well. And right. She thought, oh, the girls are here, you know, <laughs> to get off the phone. Ronnie, or so I call her Ronnie, but she's your mom. Um, of course, of course. Uh, but she passed when I was 10. So okay. there's a lot. I remember, a, I actually wrote down a list of all the things I remember. Wow. <laughs> um, and she like emotionally feels like a really big presence in my early childhood, but there's a lot of stuff I don't know about her. Okay. And so I'm really interested to hear Great. about your relationship with her so that's my cat who's going to be howling in the background <laughs> what's your cat's name uh, i have two this is rudy who <laughs> put your food out rudy it's just here let me walk you to it <laughs> we were off to a good start and for the benefit of all of you listening and honestly for myself i asked gates this question how would you describe your mom to someone who did not know her Vivacious is a word that everybody used about her. Huge amounts of energy. She was very positive publicly. 
She could be more despairing privately, but very positive. And she had hope and belief, and she wanted to make things happen. And she was very into the art. I think she was very ambitious. Mm-hmm. But she had not been able to, she had gotten scholarships to a couple of universities, like American University and a couple other places, and she had to turn them down because they, she had to actually earn money for the family in, uh, because it was wartime and everything. So she had to go mm-hmm. to secretarial school, which is too bad because she was very, very smart. Mom used to read like a book a day. She was an incredible fast <laughs> reader. It was unbelievable. I think had she graduated from the university, she probably would have ended up in you know New York City or something or Boston probably yeah. because... She had so many books, Hannah. Oh, my God. The books my mother had, it just was, uh, trust me, I had to go through them all. Uh, But wonderful books, and she just loved art. And who knows what she would have done had she had the chance. Hearing Gates describe her mom so lovingly and so three-dimensionally felt magical. I didn't get to go to Ronnie's funeral, so hearing these highly detailed anecdotes from her daughter's perspective was fascinating. All I ever knew were the neighborly basics, which I did share with Gates. So tell me what your impression of Ronnie was. Audrey and I and my parents still think of her and talk about her all the time. Well, I remember her like very fabulous white hair because it was very white when I knew right. her. Um, right. She was like so welcoming. Like that was kind of the main thing. And there was a lot of different ways that that manifested because we had both sets of grandparents very nearby, but just in the sense of like, we had a steep driveway, but she had that flat driveway. <laughs> so <laughs> we were always allowed to play in her driveway. Got and um, right. Audrey and I would go over in the summer like, a couple times a week, knock on the door, and she would always bring us root beer and banana, respectively, popsicles. And then, oh, I love it. Yeah, and then we would, like, talk. That's and, what I remember hearing about. I yeah. do remember hearing about that. They're yeah. here and they want a popsicle. Hold on, honey, I'm going to go give them a popsicle. Yeah, because I'd be on the phone with her or something. Yeah. So the popsicle memories were real. That was satisfying to hear. Her mother had had a great garden. Her mother mm-hmm. really understood how to grow things. Real green thumb. Mom loved it. And we just didn't, she never had time to do a garden until I was already gone to school, right. uh, college. You know, I, I, I came back and she had a garden finally. But she adored it. She loved her garden, her dahlias, her everything, peonies. She just really did. It gave her great solace in her life. But she, that's so great that you think of her as welcoming because she was. I think that's yeah. very very apt. Speaking of the garden, she had these Japanese lantern plants in her garden. And yeah, I yeah, remember, the orange ones. right, the orange ones. Right after she passed away, my mom, maybe this was not okay, but she like snipped a few from the plant. Absolutely. And we, it's now been 15 years and my parents have moved twice and we still have those flowers in like a no vase way. on our wall. Yeah. Wow, yeah. that's beautiful, Hannah. That's really lovely. In, and it's like in my parents' dining room. It's very centered. It's a thing that we look at all the time. That's really a lovely thing. Oh, my yeah. mother would love knowing about that. <laughs> she would. She yeah. would love that. That would just make her so happy. I've always wondered how Gates would react to knowing that those flowers were on our wall so many years later. Her reaction made me glad that I told her. Beyond our connection through her mother, Ronnie, Gates and I grew up in the same little town in Akron, Ohio, Silver Lake. We both most likely went to Silver Lake Elementary. I wondered how similar our experiences were. My childhood was uh, 
you know, the feeling of safety, being in Silver Lake, I mean, we weren't, I didn't start in Silver Lake. We started in Cuyahoga Falls on mm-hmm. Main Street, and it was a duplex, and it was more, it was a dicier sort of area. Mm-hmm. And then they just wanted to go to Silver Lake. And the reason my mother was fixated on it was because of the school. And mm-hmm. so she was very, very determined to do that. My parents were both working really hard, and, you know, they felt that, that we weren't well off, but they wanted people to think we were doing fine. You know, mm-hmm. uh, we didn't belong to the country club. We didn't do all that. Right. We did a lot of yard work and washed windows. And, <laughs> you know, we, we did a lot of that. I could walk to school, which was a great help to mom because she was by then working. We could walk to school. We could walk home in the summer. We could go down to the lake. And that was, that enabled a woman at that time to work. Right. Because otherwise, they couldn't have had the money to pay a babysitter. As Gates described how her family felt out of place in Silver Lake, I realized something about my family. I guess that we were closer to the type of family that belongs in Silver Lake than the McFaddens were. My mom stayed home. My dad was at work all the time. It was a very supervised childhood. But Gates going down to the lake, we definitely had that in common. Going to the lake was, and surely still is, a nearly universal phenomenon in Silver Lake. It's almost a rite of passage. I was allowed to go to the lake alone on my bike starting in fifth grade, borrowing my mom's cell phone in case of emergencies. It always made me feel powerful. So anyway, so that, I mean, I thought, I, I thought the school was great because we had incredible teachers. We had just two classes. You know, you really had a feeling of this kind of old-fashioned life. And then if I'd gone to Cuyahoga Falls High School, that was huge, you know, and that and and I didn't go there. That, I think that's why Mother wanted us to go to... I mean, Mother had plans for my brother and I, believe me. <laughs> she had plans. She wanted me to be in the entertainment business. So did really? my father. They loved it. Oh, yes. I think I would have probably wanted to be an architect. But no, no. I was what? definitely pushed seriously. Yeah. Because I think both my parents actually wanted to be entertainers themselves. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Man, I was dancing like three and four hours a night every day, you know, doing something, theater or something. So Ronnie had plans for Gates and her brother. How did that manifest when they were kids? We were pushed a lot. I was pushed a lot. Tons of activities. <laughs> they weren't necessarily what, you know, I mean, I, my favorite thing when I was young was was making cities in the dirt pile that we had. Mm-hmm. I loved constructing dollhouses. I never liked playing with my dolls. When my brother and I would play army or something, I hated the actual battles because I couldn't make <laughs> the sounds, but I loved making the fort. So I was always into that. And it was the kind of thing that it just women weren't, you know, unless you came from a family of architects, you just weren't kind of pushed that direction. This makes sense, given the era. Gates was growing up in the 50s and 60s. And it makes sense given Ronnie's experiences as a woman in a male-dominated professional realm, which we'll get to later. A theme in my conversation with Gates was that of mentors, how people who were different or recognized that Gates may have been different from the fancier kids she was going to school with made her feel more comfortable in these new spaces. We were a private school at Silver Lake at that time. Yeah. And it was grades one through eight. And I came there in second grade and had the best teacher of my elementary life was Miss Shade. She was a, had a big impact because I was feeling that I was not the country club set. I was not the uh, wasp set, you know. And 
we there we were in, in Silver Lake, and we were acting like we should be there, but uh, we weren't at all. I wasn't at all convinced we should, and uh, so it was it was strange. But she was the reason I kind of made the adjustment. She really took a shine to me, and she was especially nice to me, and let me take books home so I could read them at home with mom, and it definitely helped me through the passage. And she and I <laughs> still corresponded. I think she's passed finally, but. When I first got Star Trek, she wrote me. Gates continued pursuing dance and theater throughout her time in school. And even if she maybe wasn't born craving the spotlight, she ultimately went to college to continue studying performance. Like many of us girls who go to a big city to study art after growing up in suburban Ohio, she was in for a big, but positive, wake-up call. I went to Brandeis in Boston. It was a whole new world for me. Yeah. I, I, I didn't know what a bagel was until I went to Brandeis. I mean, everything. I, you know, it, was, it was this wonderful world, and we had the first black takeover of a building. We were strike headquarters mm-hmm. when I was graduating for the whole big strike for Vietnam, and we had a soldier in sanctuary on campus. I mean, it was exciting. And it became clear to me that that was more the world I wanted to live in. Right. And then from Brandeis, I went to France to study theater with a man in Paris who I had just taken a, a very amazing week's worth of classes with him when he was at Harvard, and he just blew my mind, and that changed my life. Remember this Parisian teacher, because he totally comes back later. To Gates, it felt like the world was opening up for her. The world had so much more to offer than a life like her mother's, living and working in Cuyahoga Falls, Ohio. And her mother's lived experience wasn't exactly encouraging Gates to stay. Well, it was a very sexist time. I mean, we're still struggling with it, but it was really bad then. And I mean, I have memories because I I think it was after I would have a dancing class because that would be downtown Cuyahoga Falls. I was like in sixth grade or fifth grade, maybe. And I'd walk over to meet her and she'd be at the bank. And at that time, she wasn't head of loans yet. She was the secretary to the head of loans. I remember in front of me, he would walk up to her and unzip her dress and say, oh, we got a red one on today and then zip it up again. And it would just be humiliating for my mother. In spite of harassment like that, Ronnie kept working her way up the ladder at the bank. But all of that, it turns out, was cut short. She was fired by the bank, and I know it was because she was a woman. She was the only woman officer at that time at the bank. Mm -hmm. And she was fired on Christmas Eve because Mm -hmm. the bank had been sold to a bank in New York, and they came in and said, well, we have to fire someone, and so we're not going to do it to a man because they have a family to support. And she could have taken them to a lawsuit had that happened in Boston or New York City, but not in Akron. And so... It really crushed her because she had really built a huge reputation. She had worked her whole time on F- at this bank. She would do commercials for them, her voice. Everyone knew Ronnie. And uh, it was horrible. It was really horrible. But Ronnie did not let that keep her down. Despite the humiliation of being fired, she picked herself back up and created a new venture for herself. It took a lot of courage and energy for her to get into another business. And when she ended up starting the first car leasing firm around, mm-hmm. and it was, I, I can't even remember, it was a Ford company, I think, or something. But at that time, it was pretty, you know, the guys would go over to the strip joint at, at lunchtime, you know, and so she'd <laughs> yeah. be the only woman, so obviously she's not going to go over there. You know, it was just like that kind of, that was the atmosphere. It was Mad Men, okay? It was Mad Men. Yes, yes. Except it wasn't Madison Avenue. It was, you know, wherever, Main Street, Falls <laughs> <laughs> right. or something. Yeah. I asked Gates how her mother's experience as a woman in banking and business compared with Gates's own experience as a woman in Hollywood. Neither of these environments are really known for being particularly woman-friendly. Hollywood is a much more of a... When I got there, it was 
definitely the boys club. Yeah. No question about it. Yeah. I feel like especially having the role that you had on a show that was so catered towards men must have been an interesting experience. Well, it was. And I think that they changed, you know, because I was hired as she is definitely the love interest of Picard. And right. That got just shifted by writers and studio, you know, and, and because I think they like male stars to have a lot of different female leads. The women, like our, our characters, didn't even have scenes together for years. By our characters, I'm assuming she means her character, Dr. Crusher, and Marina Sirtis's character, the overtly babely Counselor Troy. Now the shows are totally different. Now they're just much more enlightened, shall we say. But I cannot tell you how many people felt that Dr. Crusher or any of the female characters were role models for them mm-hmm. from TNG. And I'm honored, you know, if, if I've met surgeons who say I became a surgeon because I just loved who you were on that and that you also could be a mother and you were a single parent and you, it was really unusual. But on the other hand, they didn't know what to do with you. Now they're writing very full-fledged, full-rounded characters in all of the uh, sci-fi stuff. But I don't know that they really were. They wanted to, but I don't think they really knew how to do it. Like if the two female characters would get together, they'd end up talking about a guy or, you know, I don't know. For those of you without encyclopedic knowledge of backstage Star Trek history, the beginning of The Next Generation was not exactly smooth sailing for Gates. She left the show for the entire second season, and they even wrote a new Doctor character to replace her. She came back for the third season, but it seemed there were some ideological differences that made her leave the show in the first place. Remember the Parisian teacher Gates had? When he couldn't come to the U.S. due to visa logistics, he recommended Gates as a replacement for him, which led her to a career at institutions like Harvard, NYU, University of Pittsburgh, USC, and Brandeis, just to name a few. And for me, coming from academia, where you were treated with a different kind of respect and you were allowed to speak up. You had a contract, and you're part of the department, and you're part of of the ideas of the department. And it's not that way when you're a hired gun as an actor. It's just different, unless you are the lead of the show. But even then, it took years for Patrick to get power. Now, he's executive producer on his show. You know, that's why people want to get position of control, because as an actor, you have very little control when you start. When she casually mentions Patrick, she's referring to Patrick Stewart, the man who played Captain Picard on The Next Generation and is now starring in the CBS all-access show Star Trek Picard. Gates's willingness to stand up for herself in academic departments and even on the set of a show like Star Trek had to come in part from her mother acting as a strong female role model. Like Gates talked about earlier, Ronnie was a thoroughly goal-focused businesswoman, and the two of them were pretty close. But of course, Gates had left Ohio, and this was before cell phones and the internet. I wondered how that distance manifested in their relationship. College was one thing, but going to France and having to speak another language at school and everything. And at that time, that was when Nixon was happening. There, it was mm-hmm. not great to be an American over there. And there were, you know, I, I felt very lonely. We did not have cell phones. You know, we just had letters. And what's interesting is that was the period where my mother finally got to do things for her, mm-hmm. <laughs> for herself. And so I remember going, God, she's not writing me. I'm writing to my parents every day. <laughs> They're not <laughs> writing me back. And, and, In retrospect, later, I realized that was the relief 
she finally could do some things for her. She could finally, I don't know, do fun things. They, they actually took a vacation. Mm-hmm. You know, they actually did things like that, which they never had done before. They had a great group of friends. Boy, did they love those friends. And they'd do crazy things, you know, like they'd get all dressed up in formal clothes and then they'd bust to McDonald's and they'd all have dinner there and they'd just <laughs> laugh and laugh. And, you know, it was that kind of thing. It was yeah. a very folksy group. So I think that was really great. And then when I came back and it was unclear what I was going to do, that was, of course, a big worry. That's when parents want you to be like, well, this is what you do next. And then you get married and then you have three kids and then you do this and then you do that. But mother was always torn. So her own conflicts would come up in her advice to me. I feel like this is a really common phenomenon with mothers and daughters as they age. Almost everyone I know has had at least one rough patch with their mom or whoever their primary parent was as they entered adulthood. And Gates is no exception. There was a period of about two years where we barely spoke. And then we just became best friends. But there was a tough period. And it was in my 20s. And I had to stand up for myself and separate very clearly. And I think that every child has to do that. My son had to do that. I think that's a very important rite of passage. There's things that we as young, you know, as daughters don't know until we become mothers. Mm -hmm. There's things that we don't know until we become wives, you know, all of that. But also we see our parents, we stop seeing them because that transition of seeing them as parent and then seeing their foibles and then kind of like, You have to get over a certain kind of hump before you can really become friends. And then when it gets too parental, there has to be a signal. And it's just like, that's what I do with my son. If I become too parental, he just gives me this signal and it's like, okay. And that's where you have to respect it. And if you respect it, you can actually become friends and go to another plane. So how did Ronnie and Gates get past their hump? How did they start to see each other as full people? I think I was around 24 mm-hmm. because I had just earned my first kind of decent money. Um, I spent spent all my money and took her camping in Jamaica. <laughs> yeah, I got her stoned and we had a great time. And uh, and it was great. And yeah. I had to be sworn to secrecy never to tell my dad. But yeah, it was amazing. And that sort of was a shift too because um, when I got my mom on an island, <laughs> I mean... It was like a different person. Yeah. You know, it was like, oh, wow, who is this person? I want to know this Ronnie, you know? Right. yeah. It was really fascinating. And I think that's when it becomes so rich. And you could actually tell the truth to each other. On that Jamaican camping trip, Ronnie and Gates unlocked the ability to be truthful to one another, no matter how emotionally risky it might feel. And that ultimately got them through some pretty challenging times. Understanding her mother's perspective has only grown easier with time, especially in reckoning with her own relationship with her son. A lot of times when I annoy my son the most, it's when I'm fearful. And if I can catch myself and go, wait, I'm doing this because I'm afraid for him, so I'm trying to control this. He's capable of dealing with his own pain. But when you have children and you grow up and you see this, when kids are little, I believe parents, one of your roles is to take their pain sometimes. They will have a heartbreak or something and they'll talk it through. And I'm like, it's going to be okay. You know, this happens and, I, and it's, it'll be all right. I, I think it's, you sound very, very much like you know what's going on, you know, and I'm trying to give them whatever encouragement. 
they leave the room and I am a wreck and can't sleep for three days. I'm the one who's still carrying it. You see what I mean? Like we project onto our kids' pain. And once you actually, as a parent, find yourself doing that, you go, what the heck? This is what I hated that my mom did. You know, but it's, you can clock it and you can say, oh, that's what's going on. Okay. Mm -hmm. Okay. The life of Gates McFadden and the life of Ronnie McFadden are pretty different on paper. But from talking to Gates, it's crystal clear that her mother's legacy has lived on through Gates's enthusiasm, work ethic, and generosity. What do you think the greatest lesson you learned from your mom is? The greatest lesson was how to be a parent, how mm-hmm. to how to mother, how to, to absolutely believe in your child. That was the gift she gave me, was love your child, believe in your child. I wanted to be a parent more than anything. It's been the greatest experience of my life. Uh, you learn so much about life and yourself and everything by loving someone else more than yourself. Maybe it's the fact that she she allowed me to, to be pushed out of the nest. She allowed that. You know, a lot of my friends, they sort of stayed right around home. She encouraged both my brother and I to go into the world, go into the big pond, even if you have a tiny little tiny little grain of sand in that big pond. The big pond is better than being a bigger grain of sand in a little pond. There was always that thing of do it. We got to find a way, do it. Same thing with my brother. We got to find a way. You know, education, going further, keep growing. That was always the big, big thing. And I think she lived that in her life to never stop growing, never just close yourself off because she, she had wonderful things that happened to her right before she died you know it's mm-hmm. like you can have incredible moments if you're just present and authentic and and open to life and she was someone who was pretty open to life i never got to know my cool neighbor ronnie in any deep way as a kid i never even got close to understanding who she really was beyond being my nearest and dearest popsicle source let alone as a person with flaws and dreams and stories and passions I wish we could have spent more afternoons in her garden talking about realer and realer things as we both aged. But things don't always work out the way that you wish they would. But how enthusiastic her daughter, an actually famous actress, was to speak about her with me, me, just goes to show how special Ronnie was, as do the stories she shared about their time together and their influence on each other. I really enjoy the image of Ronnie stoned in Jamaica connecting in a deep way with her daughter for the first time. And I think that secretly, even if she maybe wouldn't admit it, my appreciation of that image would delight Ronnie too. All righty. That's so wonderful. Thank you. <laughs> You're welcome. And it's it, really nice to hear, hear your voice yeah. and be who you are. And yeah. That's great. It's, thank you so much for uh, responding to my like very out of the blue message. I appreciate it a lot. Yeah. Absolutely. Cool. Well, All right. stay safe and thank, thank, you, thank so you so much, much. Gates. Bye-bye. Yep. Bye. This episode of Wholehearted was written, edited, and produced by me, Hannah Ray Leach. There was a lot of this conversation that I didn't include for time, but I just have to say such a warm thank you to Gates McFadden for this episode. 
We talked a lot about her life, but she also gave me a lot of really solid advice about mine too. Stuff that like I can't put in the episode. <laughs> and I want to thank her for her generosity and her mentorship. Wholehearted's theme music and this episode's specific music was created by Josh Perlman Hall and story edits were provided by Isabel Robertson. This episode was mixed by Sean Rule Hoffman and show artwork is by Ayana Cheston. Keep up with the show on Instagram at Wholehearted Podcast and access a transcript and extra information about all of our episodes at wholeheartedpodcast.com. And if you like what you hear, you can support the show on Patreon at patreon.com slash wholeheartedpodcast. If you're into other things that could be considered nerdy, I would recommend that you listen to Wholehearted Episode 5, Love the Two-Player Game, which is about the role of nerd culture and video games in romantic relationships. It's one of my favorites. But anyway, thank you for listening and see you next time.